on, give God a hand, praise. Amen, amen, amen. Would you put your hand on somebody's shoulder next to you? Father, I bless you, and I thank you, and I honor you for the hand you shoulder I am touching. So many of us just need someone to touch us on the shoulder and say it's all right. Just need someone to support us and say you'll be okay need someone to push us and say you'll make it. We need less people on our shoulders weighing us down and more people on our shoulders saying I got your back. So Father in the name of Jesus I pray now that as we bring the bread of life you send an anointing that radically transforms the person who I'm touching now that brings deliverance to the one whose hand I'm touching now, that brings new illumination and new strategies to the person whose shoulder I'm touching now. Father, in Jesus' name, let the anointing that makes preaching and teaching the gospel be present in us. And God, I pray now that you would anoint me to move out of the way and allow the Spirit of God to bring glory to himself in this moment and in this hour. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Somebody shout amen. Amen. Give God a hand praise. Listen, you're already seated, but why don't you smile at somebody real quick and say, it's just church. It's just church. Just smile at him. Tell him it's okay. It's just church. It's just church. It's just church. All we're going to do is talk about Jesus. And some of you are like, well, how come I'm not? Amen. Give God a hand praise. Some of you are like, well, how can we, we don't have a Bible and how can we're not going right to a scripture right now? Listen, I'm going to tell you that as a pastor, Easter is supposed to be the easiest message we ever would tell. As a pastor, it's supposed to be the simplest message. It's the message about a Savior that rose, that died, or that died rather, uh, and rose from the dead. And this should be a very simple message. But interestingly enough, for many pastors across America, me included, it is always a Saturday night of consternation. It's a Saturday night of saying, God, how do you really want this to be presented and how do you want me to tell it? Because we've got to tell the story in a way that you've not heard it before so it can touch an area of your life that has not been touched before. So I hope you're praying with me this morning. I said, I hope y'all praying with me this morning, all right? Because I believe that God has something amazing for your life. Let's give God a hand praise if you're ready for the word. You ready for the word of God this morning? I said, are you ready for the word this morning? Amen. All right, it's time to go to work. Listen, listen, let's get a couple things straight before I start preaching. I want to get a couple things straight before I start preaching. Here's the first thing and foremost is that we cannot understand the story or the backdrop of Jesus until we understand these two facts. I need you to say this after me. The Romans ruled the day. Y'all didn't say that like y'all was helping me preach. Say the Romans ruled the day. The reason why that's important is because you won't understand the New Testament of Scripture unless you understand that the prevailing authority in the world at the time of the Scripture was the Roman citizenry. 
the Romans are the ones that dominated the world. They, the, it, was, it was them that got the preferred seat in, the, in not just this region, but in all of the known world at that time. The way that the Jewish story works with Roman dominance is that the Jewish community was granted a significant amount of favor with the Roman, with the Roman government, so much to the degree that they were allowed to govern themselves so long as they paid their taxes to Caesar. So some of the stuff that you see that happens in your Bible, when you, when you ask, how is it that the Jewish community was able to try Jesus? It was because the Roman government allowed them to try and to take care and govern themselves so that they wouldn't have to do it. So long as they paid their taxes to the Caesar. So long as they paid the tax to the Caesar. Do we understand that? If you understand, shout, I get it. Here's the second fact. Somebody shout number two. Here's the second fact. Before we can move forward, everything operates in two dimensions, both natural and in the spirit. Say that after me. Natural and spirit. There is always something that is happening in the natural that is an indicator of what God is doing in the spirit. This is important for you to see because if you look at life, if you look at the scripture, if you look at the Bible at face value, what you'll see is a whole bunch of natural events. But there's something spiritual that's happening behind all the natural events. It happened like that in the Old Testament. It happened that way in the New Testament. And guess what? It's happening that way right now. Whatever you're going through is not just what you're going through. There is something spiritual happening that's driving the situation that you're in. And the church said. Now, if we can understand those two truths, if we can understand that the Romans ruled the day and that there is something happening in the natural and the spirit, then you can understand everything that I'm about to share with you moving forward. Everything moving forward is hinged upon you understanding that the Jewish community was given their space to govern and to rule themselves as long as they paid their tribute to the Roman government, which meant that they could not threaten the Roman government in any form or fashion. And the second thing is that it is first natural, then it is spiritual. What we see in the natural has spiritual implication in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. And you've got to put on your spiritual eyes because if you're not careful, you'll just see what you see instead of seeing what you see. So, so today, if I, if I had an Easter sermon, if I had an Easter sermon, since I didn't have an Easter suit, I should have an Easter sermon. If I had an Easter sermon, this Easter sermon would be called His Body, His Breath, His Blood. Will y'all repeat that after me? His Body, His Breath, His Blood. His body. The Bible teaches us this about Jesus is that by the time we get to the Easter story, the Savior has spent three years teaching and preaching in the Middle Eastern region of the world. He was preaching something that no one had ever heard before. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was preaching a sermon that no one had ever heard before that I am God in the flesh. 
He was a person that grew up under a religious community, the Jewish religious community. He learned according to Jewish ritual and Jewish laws. He knew the Jewish Torah and the stories that led up to his being. But he also knew that he himself was eventually going to be the prophetic utterance of the Messiah that all of Jerusalem and all of Israel was looking for. He himself was always acutely aware that he had come into this world and had a purpose for being in this world. My purpose is not to live, but my purpose is to die. He always moved about his life with his mind set on dying, not living. His mind was always set that I'm here to die, not for my own sake, but so that other people might be able to live. And because he understood his purpose, he lived his life with purpose. And that perhaps is a lesson that some of us should grab a hold of today, is that when you live your life with purpose, you'll live on purpose. And you don't have time for some of the folly that people that don't have purpose operate in. So Jesus now finds himself, as we spoke about last week, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was in the garden where he began to pray and he began to talk to the Lord about his soon coming crucifixion. He was not bemoaning his purpose. He understood that he was leaving. He understood that he would be crucified and he would have to die. This was not something that was foreign to God. He cries out to God and says, if it be your will, will you take away this cup from me? And he cries that out three times, the Bible says. But what he is not doing is he is not asking God to take him away from his assignment. He is asking God something that is very human, which is if we can do this a different way, I'll take the other way. But what he is not asking is I don't want to go through this because he was too on purpose to want to skirt the journey to get to purpose. So he said, nevertheless, God, not my will, but let your will be done. And is there anybody in here that's got a nevertheless, not my, but your will be done spirit in here? Say, I'm here. He finds himself now in the garden praying to the degree that he begins to sweat blood from his body. This is what the scripture says. The doctors call this a hemohydrosis syndrome. When there is so much stress that the blood that is on, in your tissues begin to rise itself up to the upper epidermis of your skin tissues. And it gets blended with your sweat and it comes out. And the Bible says that he sweat blood because he was agonizing this particular moment where he would eventually be separated from the father he was afraid he was he was nervous he was this was perhaps the only thing that the savior never knew he never knew not being one with God he never knew not being one with God and when they come into the garden with 600 soldiers and Judas being with them Judas comes up to Jesus he kisses him on the cheek to identify who Jesus was he runs afterwards and the army grabs a hold of Jesus Peter pulls out his sword he chops off the ear he say not this season you're not taking Jesus we're gonna fight all of y'all and Jesus put the man's ear back on and told, Jesus, told Peter that this must happen. That if God ain't going to change how I got to go through it, I need to get myself ready to go through it. I'm going to tell that to somebody in this room. If God's not going to change how he's going to do it, you have to get yourself ready for, to go through it. And this is where we find Jesus taken. He wasn't taken to a Roman jail. He was taken to the high priest's house. 
this guy's name was Caiaphas, Caiaphas' house. He was the high priest. Why would the Roman soldiers take Jesus not to a Roman jail but to the, to the high priest's house? Because Rome ruled the day and they gave the Jewish community an opportunity to govern themselves. So this guy is running around saying he is the king of the Jews. And this guy is running around saying that his kingdom is not of this world. This guy is running around saying that he is a king and people are following him and people are getting behind his message. In fact, one of these 12 guys pulled out a sword and was ready to fight 600 tra- fishermen, was ready to fight 600 trained soldiers. And the scripture says that he's now, he's talking about he's a king and the Roman community said that it is impossible for us to have somebody call themselves a king because we can't have our king Caesar and you have your king. So the Jews said before you, before, uh, but the law said that before the Romans could do anything, they had to send them to the leaders of the Jews. But the leaders of the Jews really didn't want to deal with Jesus because they wanted Jesus dead and Jewish law wouldn't allow another Jew to kill another Jew. So even though he went to the Jewish, the, the Jewish temple to be tried, it was a mere formality. They knew they were going to try him and make him guilty, and they were going to try their best to send him back to Rome because Rome could institute capital punishment. They did not just want to hurt Jesus. They wanted to obliterate Jesus. And there are enemies against your life that don't just want to cripple you. They want to obliviate you, both natural and spiritual. It's, it's in this Caiaphas' space where they take Jesus and they don't put him in a jail the way you think about jail. Because a jail in that day was more like a pit that was in the ground. And it had a little hole in it. I had a chance to see it when I went to Jerusalem. And I actually preached in the prison perhaps where Jesus was kept. That they actually, they lower you down into this hole and into this pit. They never clean the pit. The pit is full of everything that would have been there from all of the people that had been in this pit before he got to the pit. You can imagine the smell of that pit. And this is where Jesus finds himself pondering his future and they pull him out and Caiaphas brings him up and it is his turn to be tried before the people and it is in Caiaphas's house that Jesus begins to take his first physical beatings. It is in Caiaphas' house that Jesus begins to take his first bruises. It is in Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas, the high priest, the high priest's house is the church, and it's in the church that Jesus begins to take his most hardened criticisms and bruises and beatings. Isn't, isn't that strange that the house of the Lord is often the place that inflicts the most pain. He, he says in the, he's, he's, down, he's now in the space and he is being beaten by the servants of the house of Caiaphas. Caiaphas never lays a hand on Jesus, but the Bible teaches us that, he, that they smacked him with an open hand and, and they back smacked him with an open hand. The Bible says they punched him with their closed fists, that they literally came to his beard, which would have been a, a very handsome and full beard, which is a part of the Jewish connect and custom. They ripped his beard off with full hands of hair. They ripped, ripped, they ripped his beard off open 
hand smacked. The Bible says that they covered his eyes and they, and, and they blindfolded him and they told him and they mocked him and said, if you are so God, tell us which one hit you. That's in your Bible. I'm not making this up. They started to beat him. They started to, 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 to dismember his face so much to the degree that Isaiah 52 says that his appearance was so disfigured and beyond human being that he was marred and we could not determine that he had human likeness. That means they beat him so bad we could not determine who he was. And when they realized that they could not kill him, he sent him over to a guy named Pontius Pilate. Now Pontius Pilate would have kind of been like the mayor of the city at the time. See, it's almost this idea that Jesus would have sinned and then they would have brought him to me. And then because I couldn't kill him, I sent him up to the mayor because I imagine that the mayor could do more than I could do. So they sent him to a guy named Pontius Pilate. Pilate sits and he listens to this dismembered Jesus and he starts to ask Jesus questions about himself. He starts to ask Jesus, are you really a king? And the Bible says that Jesus answered back and said, it is as you say. He said, now you're saying what I'm saying. And he said that you are the king of the Jews. The Bible, says, he, the Bible says that he looked at this man, Jesus, and he determined that Jesus was not a threat to the Roman government. So he, he said, I don't have anything to do with this man. And he sent him back to a guy named Herod. And Herod would have been kind of like the city council. The mayor is over the city council, and there's a little bit of a lesser space. And he sends him down to the city council. And then the city council, Herod, well, Herod listened to Jesus and the Bible said that Herod never laid a finger on Jesus. Herod looked at him and, and the Jewish leaders kept telling Herod to crucify him and kill him. And Herod said the man has done nothing wrong. All this guy's doing is walking around and declaring that he's somebody. And, he, and look at him. He's so messed up. He can't be who he said he is. Look at his face. He's tied up right now. You can't be a king in, in bondages. You can't be a king in chains. And you've got to watch people that underestimate estimate you. You got to watch people that look at your chains but don't see your king. He said, so he sends him back to Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate, the Bible says that Pilate takes Jesus and he, he puts him into to a prison, a more traditional prison that you and I would understand. He puts him into a traditional prison and while G Pontius Pilate has Jesus in prison, the Bible says he starts to confer with the Jewish leaders. What do you want me to do with him? We want you to crucify him, but he has done nothing wrong, but we want him dead. He's, you got to prove your case. He said he's going to be king. He, he, this man can't be king. No, he's going to uprise and take over Caesar. And, and the Bible said that it was custom that the Passover was coming. Easter Sunday was coming. The Passover was coming. It wasn't called Easter then. It was just called the Passover. The Passover was coming. And, and, and Pilate said to them, he said, listen, I'll tell you what I'll do. It is my custom to give back a prisoner to the Jewish people. And I'll stand Jesus up with another prisoner. And whichever one they choose, they can have. And then the other one will crucify. And he stands him up next to a man named Barabbas. Somebody shout Barabbas. And the people cried out and they chose Barabbas. And the night that they go to sleep after Jesus' writ was determined, the Bible said that Pilate's wife started to have a dream. Pontius Pilate's wife had a dream. And she woke up and she told Pilate, don't kill this man. I had a dream last night. I had a dream that this man was innocent and his blood is going to be on our hands. You better be careful putting your hands on this man. He hasn't done anything to you. You ought to touch your neighbor real quick and say, you better be careful putting your hands on me. I ain't done nothing to you. I said, tell your other neighbor that you better be careful 
people putting your mouth on me. I have done nothing to you. He said, he said, she said, he said, but babe, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck, I'm stuck, I'm stuck. The Bible says that he walks into the, t- the leaders of the church and he cleans his hands in front of them. And he says, you can do what you will because I'm washing my hands of the situation. And this is where we get the misnomer in our communities. I'm cleaning my hands of the situation. He said, what do you want? They said, crucify him. And they took Jesus. And after they take Jesus, now he's not in the hands of the church. He's in the hands of the world. And if you think the church can do you bad. you be, I, I know some of y'all be talking that crazy stuff. If I wanted this, I'd be in the world and they'd do me worse than that. No, no, they don't. No, 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 no. The world will spit you out. They'll chew you up, spit you out, put you under your shoes. See, after a while, God will have to speak to the church, and the church will have to repent. But if the world ain't listening, they just will keep their knee on your back until you don't think nothing about yourself. You better be careful underestimating what God can do through a born-again believer that has not been treating you the way you want to be treated. The Bible says... Bible says that the Romans took Jesus and they have this big huge post and they tied him to this post and the scripture says that they decided his first punishment would be that he would be flogged and flogging is basically a bamboo stick about yay high that a grown man takes and hits you hits you hits you And he hits your back. Anywhere from the top of your head down to about the middle of your knees is is fair game. And the Jewish community also flogged, but they only flogged you to 39 because they believed that anybody that got flogged 40 times would be their life. And they didn't want to take you a whip away, a lash away from your death for your life. So they would only lash you 39 times. Y'all saw Paul in the Bible. He said he was lashed 39 times because the Jewish community would not go over the 40. But the Romans were not governed by the Jews. There was no number of how many times they hit and beat and whipped Jesus with the flogging. In our community, we don't call it flogging, we call it caning. The Bible said they caned him to the degree that his skin began to tear. They caned him to the degree that, that, the, that the skin began to separate and the blood began to ooze out of his skin. And then after they got done, the Bible said that they mocked him and they laughed at him and they called him. They said, are you really the king of the Jews? And they laughed at him and they mocked at him because they were in the position of control now. And the scripture says, the scripture says, I'm not saying this, the Bible says, that they took something that we call a cat of nine tails. And a cat of nine tails is a whip that has nine pieces of braided leather at the end. Looks like a mop with nine pieces of braided leather. And at the end of the braided leather, they put stones. They put steel. They put pieces of iron. And the scripture says, on his back. And the reason why the army put the stones in it is because they don't want you to confuse their whips from your western whips. Because your western whips look like that. 
But when you got rocks and stones at the end, it was like that. Because it dug into your flesh every time it went in. And the Bible said that he did not mumble a word. blood came down and they laughed while he crumbled in fatigue and exhaustion no end in sight because the Romans didn't end at a number they ended when they got tired and as his flesh began to tear they saw in the natural but the reason why he stayed there is because he was watching in the spirit. Because the Bible says that he was bruised, that he was pierced rather for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquity and upon him the chastisement was put, our chastisement was placed upon him for our peace and by all of those stripes the Bible said that we were healed. And while it sounds like a gory story, you have to remember that in God's mind, he did not come here just to be here. He came here with purpose and with every stripe that hit him and with every time his skin broke and with every time the blood came down, he was praising God because he was fulfilling a prophetic utterance because by his stripes, he knew I'm healing somebody, I'm setting somebody free, I'm taking somebody to the next level. By these stripes, Ah, delivering somebody by these stripes I'm letting somebody go to the next level by these stripes ah, by these stripes by these stripes and you've got to understand something about the stripes that Jesus took is that, is that there has to be a breaking before there's a sharing I'm going to help you with somebody. Do you remember when Jesus was getting ready to feed the 5,000? The Bible says that he took the bread, he gave thanks, then he broke it. Is that if you're not willing to be broke, you can't be shared with the world. And Jesus realized that this is his body that was broken for you. Y'all are not talking back to me. He said that I broke my body for you and there will be deliverance and there will be healing. And what kind of healing is that? Healing of salvation, healing of our bodies as part of the covenant of salvation, his body was broke. Why did he have to be beaten so that you and I could be healed? Bible says that they gave him a robe. And the Bible says that they took a stick and they let it be his scepter. And then while they were beating him, Someone had taken some very flexible thorn bush and they came and ever so aggressively placed it on his head. 
and said, are you the king of the Jews? And that body. Somebody shout his breath. A note about crucifixion is that the Romans did not create crucifixion and crucifixion was not created for Jesus. It's important that we understand that the Persians, according to history, are the first ones to institute crucifixion. They didn't do it with a cross. They didn't do it with an X. They actually did it with a pole that had a sharp end. And what they would do is they take you and they would put your body on. And this is only the pain and the agonist part of it. It was meant to be a deterrent because they would leave you at about high noon and they would leave your body there so everyone that walked past it would be able to see that whatever you did, they shouldn't do. Then the Greeks got a hold of it. They learned from the Persians and the Greeks were the ones to bring the crucifixion to the Mediterranean. From the Greeks, the Greeks and the, the, the Carthenians were the ones that started to add a tad bit of, uh, of angst to the journey. They started to slow down the death process. It went from being a single uh, stick in the ground to being an X in the ground. And they would push your body according to the X and they would tie you up and they would beat you and they would humiliate you, and people would all see the spectacle. It was the Romans, the Romans, the Romans. They perfected the art of slow capital punishment. They wanted to slow the process down that your body would stay up and you would die slowly for days, maybe weeks if you were strong. They wanted to hang you real high so that you were not just seen by the people that were there at the cross, but you were seen by everyone that looked on to know that somebody had done something terribly wrong against the government. 
they, they didn't just want you to, to die out through their beating. They wanted the animals to pick at you, and they wanted the gnats to come, and they wanted the flies to be, they wanted the locusts to make your dying and agonizing death to deter anyone else from doing whatever you did to get there. The thing about the Old Testament and the New Testament, by the time the Romans had perfected it, they had come to the idea that a cross was a better hanging post than an X. And this is the way that Jesus would ultimately be crucified. He would ultimately be crucified in a way that pushed out not just his blood, but his last breath toward the name of God. The scripture says, and he gave, and eventually he breathed his last breath. If I could talk about the breath of God for a second, and we had not talk, we cannot talk about the breath of God without talking about the name of God. We call him God. His name is not God. God is a title. It is the title of a supreme being. In fact, the first name of God was not Jesus. The first name of God was not Elohim. The first name of God was not Adonai. In fact, if our history shows us correctly, the first name of God was not a name at all. It was the sound of breathing. No, pastor, that can't be because the Bible teaches us in Exodus that God gave his name to Moses when Moses sat there and had his experience with God. God told him his proper name and God told him, I am, and that would be the name of God. Well, let me challenge you because that was God's revelation of his name to Moses. But not necessarily God's revelation of his name to the rest of the world. That's why you got to be careful putting your conviction on everybody else because that's what God is convicting you about. So what happened, and I want to prove this in a second, because the Jewish community oftentimes put the name of God on their names. There was some kind of expression that God was with them. So they would have a derivative of, say, Jehovah, and the, and it would, and the name would end with Ah, like Rebecca. Or there would be some derivative of God, E-L-L, -L, the, and the name would sound something like Rachel or Joel. Or Dan L. Are you seeing what I'm saying? And Moses, his mother's name was Jokava. And Jock, it really probably better pronounced Jokava, which means that Moses couldn't have got the revelation of who God's name was before, because his mother's name was a derivative of the Jehovah, Jokava. His mother's name was a derivative of it. And we have to ask ourselves then, well, if Moses didn't get the name of God, then how did we get a name that is associated with God? If, in fact, the first name that was given to us is a name that is breathing. Ja, ja, uh, 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 the first name that we give is the name Yahweh. Will you say that after me? Yahweh. That is the first known name that we have uttered out of our mouths that give God a proper name. 
This was not associated with his title. This was his proper name, uh, uh, Yahweh. Yahweh is, uh, is, is an interesting name because it's not just the first name, but it is a name that has so many transliterated derivatives, but it's not because God changed it. It's because culture has changed it. The history of this that's associated with God is so prevalent in the Jewish community, particularly in ancient times, that when they talked about Yahweh, many times they never said Yahweh. They would be talking about and just complete their sentence just like that. Yahweh was so holy to them that it is actually pronounced Y-A-H-W-A-Y, and they took out all of the vowels so that they would not be saying his name as a whole if they ever pronounced Y-H-W-Y. Yahweh is, uh, is, the reason why they gave the name Yahweh is because as the Jewish community gained popularity in the world, they needed to have an identifier of who their God was. So they gave him a name. Whenever we get ready to identify something, we give it a name. He get, they give him a name, or he gives them a name, brother. This is what Moses was asking. What name? I can't walk into the palace and just say, sent me. He said, give me something I could say. He says, you can say Yahweh. Yahweh was the universal name. Yahweh then gave way to what we now use the term as Elohim. All Elohim simply means is it means exalted one. All Elohim really means is, is God. It is a title. It is not God's name. And from this idea of Elohim is where we get the, the derivative of El that goes along with all of the names that are Hebraic. After the Hebraic community finishes with it, they also, because they did not believe that they should call God by his given name, almost the way my grandmother would never let me call her by her first name. They came up with the name Adonai. They never wanted to approach him as a personal pronoun, so they called him Adonai. And what Adonai literally means is my Lord. Adonai is just simply a description of the God that they're talking about. That is almost as if to say that my wife's name is Cavalier, but I could call her my wife. And if everywhere I went, I called her my wife. If her name was so holy to me that I did not want to utter it, I could just say my wife. That's why they say Adonai. So Adonai is just their way of saying my Lord. They thought that the word was God's name was so holy that they took out all of the vowels in it and just left the consonants in it. And the, and the reason why they eventually had to leave the consonants in it is because written language started to become popular. And now they cannot write. So they wrote Y-H-W-H. And then, of course, as the Latin community started to take over the world, the word got Latinized. It got Latinized because, uh, because there, is, uh, there are no Ys, or excuse me, there are no, no Js in the, uh, the, the Hebrew language and in the Latin language. So everything that would have a J in our world today generally has a Y in it. That's why Jesus' name was not Jesus. It was likely Yeshua, Joshua. By the time the West gets it, it always is something different. <laughs> Jesus. 
Because to, ter- to, to put it into the Western term, we had to take the Y and create a J. But the Y and the J have the same sound. They just don't have that letter in those two languages. And this is how we get the idea of Jehovah. Jah. Joshua. Jesus. Yeshua. Yeshua. Yahweh. What an interesting name for God. It's an interesting name, but I want to show you in Scripture that it's the name that he used the most. It is the way that he identified himself. If you find yourself in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, you'll understand that in a world that had, at the time, a chaotic world, the Bible says that the world was void and without form. That doesn't sound like anything that God would put together, something that is a mess. It is without form and it is void. And the Bible says, but the spirit, somebody shout the spirit. The spirit hovered over the earth. Now, that word spirit is the word that means breath. So over the chaos, over the chaos of the earth, over the mess that was in earth, over whatever mess you're going through right now, the Bible says that God was over the mess. And not only was God over the mess, the Bible said that when God got tired of the mess, it was that same breath, it was the same wind that receded the waters back and the land and the water became separate for a change. In other words, what was happening is God was starting to put some order to the earth that was destroyed. It was not, it was not man's ingenuity. It was not the the intellect. It was not a psychological uh, exercise. It ended up being an exercise that was divine. It ended up being the breath of God that fixed chaos and this was important because God wants all of us today to know that the breath of God is still fixing chaos it was this breath somebody shout his breath It was this breath that the Bible says in chapter 2 that God had formulated out of the dust of the ground. He had formulated this thing that had eyes and this thing that had hands and this thing that had hair and this thing that had feet. He had formulated a thing with a torso out of the ground and lay there in the ground. He looked at the thing that was in the ground, but the thing could not respond to him. The thing could not do work for him. The thing could not praise him. And what he did, the Bible says next, is to show that he is in everything that is alive. Bible said that he breathed his Ruach breath and the thing that was on the ground became a living being and everything that is alive has God not his breath has God has God in it and I got to repent to all of you because, because the Bible says, let everything that has breath 
praise ye the Lord. And I would used to teach that every, I used to always teach this idea that if, that, that people that could praise God and that people had the breath of God had to give God praise and that they were born again and that they loved the, the Lord. But, but I don't think that the Bible is a commanding us by saying let everything that had breath. I think it's an observation, not a commandment. I think what happened is when the writer started to look at everything that was alive and everything that was moving, he declared that everything that has breath is praising the Lord, not because it's obedient to God, but because in and out is going. So can I tell you something about God? Is that God don't need you to be perfect for you to give him praise. All you got to do is be breathing and you'll be giving him praise. And this way, the devil, I'm not talking back to me. See, the believer has a cognitive understanding why I'm praising God. But the atheist is praising God even though he's denying what is keeping him alive. The hater is praising God. The devil is praising God every time they... It is God's way of saying I'm still in control. Even the devil is calling out his name. In the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, it is the same Ruach that God takes Ezekiel and he takes him to a valley. And in this valley, there are people that have been dead for many years of warring. And their bodies are starting to decay. And there is nothing left in this valley but dry bones. And God looked at Ezekiel and he asked him the question, can these dry bones live? And the Bible said that Ezekiel says back to God, but everything in this place is dead. God said, speak to the dry bones. And the Bible says when Ezekiel spoke out of his mouth, a wind came. Y'all are not talking back to me. When he spoke out of his mouth, God came and everything that was dry and dead started to put itself back together and come to life because of the... The breath that is the name of God. The thing about crucifixion is this. It is critical how they put you on the cross. And we have taught you wrong about the way Jesus stood on the cross with straight knees. The Bible says that they take Jesus after having beat him. And they move him up to this hill called Golgotha. And they laid him down. On his cross, after having carried his cross, the Bible says that a man, an African-American man, or, or maybe not African-American, but he was an African man. He wasn't American. He was African. <laughs> we, was, we was still in trees. <laughs> an African man picks up the cross part of the cross because they made you carry the cross part that made the tea. 
if you look to your balls, to your left and to your right, you'll see a part that goes longer and you'll see the sideways part, the side part. They make you carry yourself. And Jesus had bled so much blood. He was so exhausted after days of being tried and being beaten. He is carrying his cross and he falls to his ground. And a black man named Solomon, we are in the Bible, picks him up. And he takes him, he takes it the rest of the way. Because every now and then, all of us need somebody that will help us carry our crosses. The Bible said when they got him up to the top of the hill, it was time for them to begin the execution, the final stage of crucifixion. And the Bible says that they laid Jesus down and they put the cross bow on the side of the cross. And as they laid him, they took nails because it was so close to the Passover time that they had to nail him. To, they had to nail him. He couldn't die slow because according to Jewish custom, anything that was dead had to be taken down and had to be covered and put away and properly buried. So they didn't have time for Jesus to be on a cross for, for three, four, five days. They needed him to go ahead and die sometime this day so that we can go and celebrate. Isn't that interesting that people can kill you and celebrate at the same time? No conscious about them. Themselves. You pick them friends, not me. Yeah, but <laughs> he stretches hands out. And instead of ropes, they take nails. And they didn't nail his hands because the hands had a tendency of ripping if your weight was too heavy. So they nailed, right? I believe it's called the medial carpal bone. And they take the nails through his hand and into the wood. Somebody shout, into the wood. And they took his other hand and they nailed his other hand into the wood. Somebody say, into the wood. What is next is crucial for the way crucifixion works is they now have to take your feet and put them one on top of the other and then lay them flat up against the crossbow. And in order to do that, they'd have to bend your knees. And they would bend his knees and put his feet, and through his feet, they nail his feet. And the nails would go through the cross say into the wood the excruciating pain of the savior and its nails the excruciating pain of having been whipped and beaten to a pulp he is not recognizable he is perhaps only feeling and only alive because his adrenaline is pumping through his veins trying its best to necessitize the pain that he is going through at this moment and at this time and he's laying on the ground and he is thinking and he is processing that I'm almost home. And this pain could not get worse unless they lift me off the ground. And if they lift me off the ground with my knees bent, the only way that I could get upright is to push on the nails. But if I don't push on the nails, 
I'll be so extended that I can't breathe. People didn't die on the cross because of the blood. They died because of asphyxiation. And asphyxiation, for those of you that skipped that part of class, <laughs> it means to not be able to breathe. cry out because of the pain his fear and trepidation was not because of the pain his fear and trepidation was not because of a cross he didn't cry out take this cup of me because he didn't want to go through the bodily harm it was because he had never been separated from his father and on the cross <gasps> Rejected and alone, like rose, trampled on the ground. He took fall and thought of me. 
And I know it was the blood, and I know it was the blood, I know it was the blood for me. One day, he died upon the cross, and I know it was the blood for me. I dare y'all to help me sing that. I know it was the blood. I know it. And I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood for me. Come on, balcony. One day when I was lost, he died upon a cross. And I know it was the blood for me. What a gory way to start talking about a celebration. I found that the world struggles with what we have found reason to celebrate about. That when we talk about the blood, they call us a very violent religion or a very violent group of people. That's not new. That was actually something that was given in the ancient days. They, they could not understand how a man who brought peace could be talking about breaking his body and giving his blood for the sake of people. But it doesn't start with us singing an old hymn here at church. The story of the blood is actually an ancient story. And you'll recall in the book of Exodus, after God had sent Moses to go and speak to the Pharaoh of his day, you remember ten times Moses went to go talk to the Pharaoh, to challenge the Pharaoh, to let his people go. It is a few facts that are important for you to understand if you're going to understand how that relates to why we celebrate the blood of Jesus Christ. The first thing is that the children of Israel were in, enslaved. Somebody shout enslaved. They were not just in bondage. They were slaves. They could not leave when they felt like leaving. They were slaves. The second thing is that that's important to understand is that those ten plagues, each of those plagues were not just random arbitrary things. Each of those ten plagues represented the symbol of gods that were worshipped in that day with the Pharaoh being the chief God of all of those symbols. 
Have you ever wondered why the Pharaoh was oftentimes linked in gold and had gold crowns and had gold necklaces and had gold on his shoulders and oftentimes gold on his wrist? That was because the Pharaoh was not just considered a president or a king. A Pharaoh was considered a god. And, the, and not just any god, the sun god. And the reason why they wore all of the medals across their chest was to reflect the sun so that he would always have a, a beam across his face. Now, do you understand why Moses came down from the mountain after having spent time with God with a glow on his face? God sent Moses to Pharaoh and said, go tell Pharaoh that the God of fertility and the gods of, of finance and the gods of their protection and the gods that were reflected in things like animals, toads, locusts, etc. The way we celebrate the cross, they celebrate, they would make trinkets that looked like a locust or trinkets that looked like a cow or trinkets that looked like the water. They had symbols. So God tells Moses, to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go and I'm going to send a plague every time you go. What he was doing was trying to let Pharaoh know that whatever you believe is sustaining you, that ain't it. I'm it. So he would kill by locusts and he would kill by toad and he killed by polluting the water and he killed. This was God's way of having spiritual warfare with the Pharaoh. The Bible says that at the last time, it was the fertility God they were battling, and the children were now up to, up to bat. And God said, you go tell Pharaoh that I'm going to kill his firstborn, and I'm going to kill everybody's firstborn that is underneath his authority. Then he told Moses, but you go back and you tell all of your people that I want them to do something special for me. And he said, I want them to go outside and find the best calf that they own. And I want them to sacrifice to me that calf. And then I want them to take the blood from that calf. And I want them to walk outside, stay with me now. The, the, the Egyptian household was a very different structure of house than the Roman, uh, than the Jewish house after they came out of uh, of bondage. It's important to understand that I don't want you to think about the Jewish house that was oftentimes made with dried up mud and mortar and made with uh, 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 leaves that came from palm trees. The, the Egyptian house was usually a house that was made with a wooden door frame and it was bricked around. It was a very sophisticated structure. It's important that you get this because God says that after you kill and sacrifice this lamb, I want you to take the blood and go smear it on your wooden doorpost. Somebody shout wooden doorpost. He said, then I want you to go inside of the house and close the door. I want you and your family to enjoy the animal that you have killed. He said, I want you to eat it up and enjoy and have a feast. He said, because this night, I'm going to release a death angel, and the death angel is going to kill everyone's firstborn. But if the death angel sees the blood on your wooden doorpost, he will pass over. Somebody shall pass over. 
This is where the Jewish community gets the holiday, the Passover. It is the idea that when God's wrath came for people that were not inside and safe because the identifier of the blood on the wood that the angel would pass over and they would be what we call today saved. They would be rescued. They would be delivered. They would be what the Greek would call sozo, which is salvation, where we get the word salvation from. Inside of this place, only, and not just inside the place, but only if the blood was on the wood would the death angel pass. You couldn't just be in the church, I mean in the house. You had to have the blood of the lamb on the wood. Remember when I started the conversation and told you that it was both natural and spiritual, that what you see in the natural, something is happening in the spirit. See, we judge the conversation by saying it's gross that a lamb would be killed. But in the natural, it was a lamb. In the spirit, it would be who we call Jesus Christ. This is why we call him the lamb of God. We look at it and think that the blood is a gory thing and that it is an arbitrary thing. But the Bible teaches us that the blood is the lifeline of a thing that is living. That without the blood, there could be no remission of sins. The Bible says that the blood speaks of better promises. That the blood speaks. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The Bible says that the blood speaks. When Cain was killed, Abel, the Bible said, he said, where is your blood? brother he said am I my brother's keeper he said of course you're your brother's keeper he said well I bet you can't find him he said I hear his blood coming his blood is crying out from the earth and if you understand what he meant when he said blood the Bible was not just saying Abel's blood he was saying the blood of all of his generations so God was saying that I can't just hear Abel cry out I hear his children and his children's children and the future's you destroy and the few see the devil don't want to mess up just your life he ain't after you no more you've made your decisions about how you're going to do life he wants to destroy the future of your children and your children's children this is the blood that we hear the bible says that jesus becomes the lamb that was slain and the blood is crying out on your behalf and it's on top of your wood and the Bible teaches that Jesus sat on the cross and they nailed him in his hands and they pulled him up on the old wooden cross. Somebody gonna catch this. And the blood came streaming down off of his broken body that was bruised for my iniquities and the chastisement of my peace was laid upon him and he gave his last breath and the blood came down on the wood. Now wood represents humanity and you cannot get into the kingdom with your flesh. You only get in the kingdom when the blood covers your flesh. I wish I was preaching to somebody 
in here. So when the blood, when the nail went in his hand and the nail went into the wood and the nails went into his feet and the nails went into the wood and they rose him, it was all to make the blood come pouring down because it was hitting the ground while he was on the ground. But when they lifted him up, the blood covered the wood. And I don't know about you, but I thank God that the blood covers all of my human frailties, that the blood covers where I messed up and slipped up and didn't do it the way God challenged me. It is not I'm so good, it's because of the blood. Because when he gets to me and gets ready to deal with me the way I should be dealt with, he sees it's not my good deeds. He doesn't see that I preach every Sunday. He doesn't see that I pray. He doesn't see that I give my offering. He ain't looking for a big offering. He's looking for the blood. He's not, y'all not talking back to me. He's not looking at how often you come to church. He's looking for the blood. And I'm not going to be in the church without the blood. When he shows up, he sees the blood and he passes. Somebody ought to give God a praise because I know uh, it was the blood. Somebody shout the blood. Somebody shout the blood. He said, I know it was the blood. The whippings healed my body, but the blood was the payment for my sin. For without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of my sins. So I identify with that poor lamb that wasn't hurting anybody, but one who knew no sin became sin for me that I might receive the righteousness of God. The Bible says he breathed his last breath and then he died. What did he do while he was dead? Bible says that all of the old patriarchs who had been deceased before him that believed and died in the faith, he showed up to where they were. He said, well done. He said, well done. He said, you praised me before you saw me. You believed me before I died for you. And I need somebody in here that can praise him before he heals you. And praise him before he delivers. Y'all ain't talking back to me. He, because he'll show up where you are and make himself be known. The Bible says that he takes the blood to the father and he tells him, is this what you wanted for their sins? Is this what you wanted for her sins? And God said, that the blood is the only payment I was looking for. It was going to be your blood or their blood. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory. 
that it was his blood. And I don't know about you, but I know it was the blood for me. your eyes for a second because this was Jesus's view on Thursday night it was his view all day Friday and Friday night this was his view all day Saturday and Saturday night and nobody knows the time or the moment that it happened open your eyes but this was his view on a Sunday morning. One of the things that makes Christianity different than all the other religions is not that they had a savior. It's not even that they had a sacrificial story. It's not even necessarily that they don't align with some of the patriarchs that you align with. The difference is that our savior was not a prophet. He was savior. And while all of them had death in common, ours got up. And the challenge with history is not that we jump and shout and scream and dance and say that he got up. It's that they've got in their possession everybody else's body but Jesus's. And I only have one conclusion to come to. 
that if you tell me that the greatest people in the world that keep the, the greatest records of history in the world can't find somebody, he must not be there. And I can only take the report of scripture to tell you where he might be. The Bible says that he's now high and lifted up and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he's making intercessions on behalf of all of us that dare to say, I received the blood of the lamb. And he's fighting battles for you. And he's fighting battles for me. And because he got up, whatever you're into, you can get up out of. He's got the power not just to raise himself, but to raise you up. Now, I don't know who's down in this room, but I need somebody that needs to get back up that can't do it in their own power to raise your voice and give God a shout of praise if you believe that he can do what you Somebody shout, he got up! And every dead area in your life got to get up. And every dead area in your journey has to get up. And some things that can't get up need to stay dead. Because God can bring to life whatever he needs to have alive in your journey. So you ought to give God praise for what was dead and has come back. But if it stay dead, let it stay dead. Because God can bring back what he needs to be a blessing in your life. And the story of Easter, the story of Resurrection Sunday is that there is a God that loves you so much. That loves you so much. Come on, stand to your feet. Stand to your feet. I'm finished. There's a God that loves you so much. He loves you so much that he chose not to allow you to be on that proverbial cross. Because yes, the beating would have hurt you and the flesh would have torn but nobody would have been healed from your torn flesh. And you would have bled. I promise you, you would have bled. But nobody would have been saved because of your bleeding. And you would have just had humanity on top of humanity. Sinful blood on top of sinful wood. But God, somebody shout, but God loves us that he gave his only begotten that whoever believes identifies with the blood that's on the, the doorpost whoever can say that, that I'm in such a crazy space in my life that, that I have no choice but to accept what this lamb is going to believe because, because when the angel comes or when, when the wrath of God comes when the, when the judgment comes I, I know me so if, if he's judging this thing off of righteousness, I'm going to miss because I know me. You ought to lay your hands on yourself and say, I know me. Yeah, don't lie to yourself. Say, I know me. Don't, don't think too much of yourself than you ought to think. You ought to say, I know me. I know me. So with fear and trembling, I'm in this house trying to have faith in the reality of this blood on my doorpost. And I hear the cries of all of Egypt. And God says, take rest in me. 
enjoy the feast that's before you. I can't enjoy the feast. I hear too many people crying. I can't enjoy the feast because I know me. I can't enjoy the feast because I'm trying to, struggling to make sure that this blood thing is going to work for me. And as they cry, and as they heard people knocking on the doors, and as they heard them running for their lives, and as the cries went into moans, and as moans went into somberness, and as somberness went into grief, God said, Moses, go tell them to come out now because I saved them. He said, and start walking them toward the land I promised them. And don't look back because this day in the sight of all the hearing, their lives has changed. They are now identified with me. They are what we call in, in modern day terms, saved. In another language, born again. In another community, one with God. In another journey, I am now his son or his daughter. And this is why we celebrate today. We didn't get dressed up just to be dressed up. We got dressed up to commemorate that the blood worked. And your life, and your life, and your life watching, and your life there, and your life downstairs, and your life upstairs, and your life, your life has been forever radically shifted and changed because of what he did on the cross. And usually in a very interesting way, a lot of born-again believers packing churches to celebrate their risen Savior. But today, I want to talk to the person that has not accepted him, that has not believed that the blood of Jesus Christ has covered your faults and that your sin. I want to talk to the person that is maybe indifferent right now about whether you're saved or not. I was always taught that if you ain't sure, then you're probably not. I want to talk to the person that has been walking with God and you've fallen away from God and you're having a bad season and you're saying today because of something I heard, because of the worship, because of the fellowship with other believers today, is my day that I'm going to say yes to Jesus. I don't, I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't want to put you on the spot. But this is one of those days where I feel like I need to challenge you. Because the Bible says that if you're ashamed of me in front of men, then I'm going to be ashamed of you in front of my father. And I want you to understand something, that, that I'm not about to call you and ask you to come so that people can 